Hello, and welcome to Dear Franny, the podcast of uncommon conversations about love. I'm your host, Francesca Hoagie. Where in the world are you, I wonder? Thanks to all of my listeners around the world. Shout out to everyone in Norway and Canada and Spain and Australia and the UK and the US, all the places where Dear Franny podcast is still on the charts. And that makes me so happy. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all of you who have taken the time to rate and review the show. I really, really appreciate that so much. And I am in London at the moment. And if you listened to my last episode, you know that I was in Mallorca. But a couple of weeks ago, before I left LA, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Chris Donahue. And I've been following him on Instagram for a long time. He's a very strong voice and advocate for body positivity, equality, sex positivity. And he's a rebel and he's um, bold. He pulls no punches and he has conversations that a lot of other people aren't having. After we recorded this episode, I was like, wow, I'm so excited to listen back to it because maybe more so than any other episode I've recorded just because you know, no, no shade and no, um, not to disparage all of my amazing guests, but with Dr. Chris, he just said a lot of things that I'd never thought about before. I'd never heard before. So I was like, wow, I need to think some more about this. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Before we jump in, I want to give you a snippet of Dr. Chris's bio and he's very accomplished and he has a lot of letters behind his name, only half of which I even know what they stand for, but he is a PhD at LCS. WSCST ACS. Dr. Chris Donahue is an international lecturer, therapist, and educator. He is the director of clinical education for the Sexual Health Alliance and the host of the relaunched Love Line nightly radio show. Remember that show? Yes, it's back. Please listen. Co-host of the Amber Rose Show with Dr. Chris podcast, weekly expert on the Amber Rose Show, and frequent co-host on the Doctor's TV show. He's hosted other shows on We. He's been featured on the Today Show, Vice, CNN, Own, among others. He's been featured in the New York Times, Men's Health, Cosmo, and he is the author of the books Rebel Love and Sex Outside the Lines, Authentic Sexuality and a Sexually Dysfunctional Culture. He calls out a lot of the dysfunction in our culture regularly, and if you are on Instagram, you should definitely follow him because he is entertaining and also educational um, there. And in the show notes, I will have links, of course, to his social media, to his website, and to more. So without further ado, please enjoy my very thought-provoking and provocative conversation with Dr. Chris Donahue. Dr. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. This is very exciting for me. I've been following you for a long time and really appreciating you and your rebellious, unapologetic, (laughs) feminist, just pro-human, pro-sex, pro-body message. It's just, it's really awesome and it's refreshing. Thanks. You know, part of it is just that it's interesting to me. I mean, some people ask me, what's the most motivating force behind all the different levels, I guess, of um, rebellion, as you say, or activism? I was raised in a pretty great family and childhood. And so I didn't really suffer a lot of trauma or whatnot. And I think for me, what kind of started driving all that was just the clinical work I was doing, working
working with individuals that were oppressed and so much violence against them within and without the dating sex world because of different minority identities and statuses. And I just was getting so heartbroken and I wanted to do something about it. You say that you were lucky enough to grow up in this amazing environment. Was sex something that was openly discussed in your childhood, in your family? Like, Obviously, that would be very uncommon. I think for me in my childhood, the main message about sex was don't have it. There wasn't much more conversation behind that. Was sex, was that a topic that you've just always been open about? I I wish. I mean, and that's the funny part about the whole journey. I definitely did not (laughs) by any means have a healthy sex education or, you know, anything beyond what you just kind of spoke to. I I went to a private Catholic school for grade school and high school. And so... Okay. (laughs) Say no more. (laughs) So sex wasn't discussed. And, you know, when it was, it was very much don't have it. Sin was always attached to it. The education was very gendered and heterocentric and again, just very fear-based. And so I definitely didn't have a healthy relationship to it. However, when I went up to New York City to go to school, to go to college, I'm from Philadelphia, that's when I really was introduced to, now we didn't have those terms then, but I was introduced to feminism, sex positivity, body positivity. Again, those terms didn't exist at that time, but I was around people that were really confidently and powerfully kind of exploring those different levels of their identity, politics, and that's what kind of woke me up. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually grew up in New York City. I always had those people in my life who were so just confident and unapologetic. And I'm sure in Philadelphia it was similar. But one of the great things about growing up in a city is that you always know every kind of person. And I knew people who were gay and they were out when we were in high school. And I knew all of that, which was fantastic. And I, I think I probably took that for granted growing up. But the body positivity part, that I feel, and I don't know, maybe this might be kind of a gender thing. I don't know. I think that's been the hardest, the body positivity has been a harder struggle for me than sexuality. And it breaks my heart because that one is going to be a longer road for us socially and politically, I think. And, and what do I mean when I say that? I don't know. I, it, the change isn't as rapid somehow. Not that sexuality ever was or is because clearly we still see people struggling with it. Clearly we still see on the news people murdered for it. There's still conversion therapy happening. I mean, but I don't know. I'm personalizing this right now as I'm speaking because I'm thinking about my own experience. I was talking to a friend just yesterday and I was saying how I was at the gym. That's its own experience, right? Like we, <laughs> it's like to walk into a gym and all the triggers and, and ex- emotions and experiences and even my own struggle with why am I here? What part of me is here? The healthy part, the unhealthy part, whatever. Mm-hmm. And just in being at the gym, I'm not very social, but I, I spoke to three different people in passing. All three of them somehow started speaking in body shaming terms, covertly or overtly, a lot of diet culture. And I just thought like, I can't get away from this. And then I came home and I was talking to someone that I'm casually dating and they were talking incessantly about that. And I just was realizing how, I think with sexuality, it's a little more compartmentalized. So you're not always bumping into it, but the body negativity is so pervasive that walking down the street, I'm seeing billboards, people are having conversations, I'm hearing it in music. We are so immersed in it that there's just so much to dismantle. We really are. So just for like an example, like the people at the gym, was it, were they criticizing themselves? Were they commenting on someone else's body? Like what was the... Thankfully, they weren't commenting on someone else. That would have been <laughs> really heartbreaking. But they were they were shaming themselves. You know, it was, the, it was the standard, I have to do a little extra today because of what I ate last night. I'm really trying to get fit, 
But what they really mean is I'm really trying to get my body to look a certain way that I think it has to look. So it was those kind of elements. And I'm there listening to my music, having an amazing afternoon, and I don't want to have to think about that or my own body, right? Because when someone starts talking about theirs, you naturally then start to assess yourself a little bit. Like it's like a lens that you then internalize for me. Yes, totally. Right? (laughs) It's so true. It's, you know, I've actually been on a very interesting journey with my own body this year because I'm 44, going to be 45 in November. Most of my life, I was very active and I, that was just part of my lifestyle. And, but I also had a very much had an attachment to looking a certain way, total self body shamer, like totally like, oh my God, you know, those jeans aren't fitting the same way. Like got to do something about that. And that was my life for most of my life. And then around the time I turned 40, I, I got over it and it got over it in a good way. And the good part of it was that I no longer felt this pressure to have a body that conform to this certain standard of what women's bodies should look like in our Mm -hmm. culture. So in that sense, it was empowering. But in the other sense, I kind of just, I became more indulgent in terms of like, I'm going to eat what I want to eat and I'm not going to exercise, but I don't feel like exercising. I went too much to the other extreme to the point that I actually was diagnosed as being pre-diabetic earlier this year. And so I was like, shit. (laughs) And I had gained, you know, actually I gained in the last four years, I gained 45 pounds and I really didn't care. I was like, in terms of how I felt in my body. And I was so happy about that. I was like, I love the fact that I gain weight and it's not making me feel like I'm not attractive and this, that, and the other. The radicalness um, of what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> you are rare. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. So I was very comfortable, but then I found out that I was pre-diabetic. And unfortunately, the same things that caused me to gain 45 pounds or the same things that caused me to become pre-diabetic, then it became a health crisis. So then I started exercising more and I had to be more, I, I was like, I hate that I have to be a person who's like, oh my God, like this, how many grams of sugar? in this or what are the carb counts? But I was like, really like, I can't, I I was so determined not to get diabetes. You've been able to engage in the needed process for your health while not falling back into the problematic perspectives as well. So I've now in the last four months, I've lost 33, 35 pounds. And first of all, people's responses to me, people are like, oh my God, you look so amazing. You look so beautiful. What did you do? How did you do it? Every, like basically everyone I see from my neighbors to my friends, my family, everybody is having this, you know, very extreme (laughs) reaction, which I mean, and I'm not knocking them for doing that. It's definitely, I feel myself returning a little bit to that oh, I look really good in this. And I look, you know, I feel like it's kind of coming back a little bit. So I'm actively fighting against it because I'm like, listen, I'm making these choices for my health and I don't want to fall back into that trap of thinness and flat abs and all of that shit that's so oppressive. But that's you know? the messaging, right? Is that mm-hmm. although, you know, we live in this culture where people assume weight loss is always something done for a positive reason as well. They don't assume maybe it's due to illness or medication or depression. And so that's why I try to talk about just body neutrality where don't comment on people's bodies because you don't know if they're trying to lose weight or gain weight. You don't know what's driving the loss or the, or the gain. And so when you say you look great, you hear internally, I mean, way in on this, you hear internally, this is what people want from me. This is yes. what people expect. This is me at my best to the world. And understandably, we're people, right? We want to be accepted. No matter how healthy you are, you still want a level of acceptance. And I just know for me, when you live in LA and when you live in LA and you do media, some of that matters, right? Because it's that battle of I have to be able to do the work I want to do. And there's an expectation 
to look. It's a battle, but I mean, I compliment you because you're doing it so mindfully and consciously that you're probably going to be the best case scenario because it's a tough position, diet culture, gym culture based things that are problematic, different perspectives, but you have to find a healthy way to exist in it. Exactly. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm trying every day. It's like, all right, <laughs> you know, let's do this and not get attached to the form so much. So speaking of body shaming and all of that, one of the things that you talk a lot about and write a lot about is using sex as a way to really heal your body shame and as self-care. And I love that messaging. And can you talk a little bit more about that and the power of that? Yeah. And it's a shocking perspective, right? Because people that are raised specifically in the clinical world, I've had some people ask me, kind of doing the work you're doing that aren't necessarily in the clinical world, but they're doing work around sex and dating and all that. I've been asked by a few people, am I at a loss for having not gone the true clinical route? No, it's just different because there's a lot of things you have to unlearn if you do the clinical route that you don't have to unlearn if you do a non-clinical route. And both are so valuable and so needed. And I think clinically, we never were trained to look at sex as a form of transformation. It was always looked at as this act that two people do. It's always two, generally a man and a woman, and they do it only. And sex only exists that moment. And it's like, wow, because my sexuality is always operating. It's when I choose what I'm going to wear in the morning. That's my sexuality. How do I want to look and be seen? How do I feel my body? That's a really interesting perspective. Right? It's it's the way you walk sometimes. It's the eye contact you make or don't make. It's Mm -hmm. how close you might stand to someone in line. I mean, it's just always operating with us and in us. And so why not find ways to work with that? But more specifically to your question about sex as a vehicle for really getting a different relationship to our body, my God, sex is one of the most vulnerable, intimate things we can do with someone, right? We're generally naked and we're expressing and showing a part that we are trained to hide as much as possible from the world. And now we're bringing you in. And even for people that are, you know, hypersexual, have a lot of sex, which is great. It's still a limited experience, right? We're still more comfortable and used to being clothed and non-sexual. And so for people that struggle to love their bodies, I think there's something really powerful in one, having them have to fully be in it by having sex. Like that's a powerful experience. Two, something radically powerful. And I've seen this in my office with clients that have their desirability reflected back by seeing another person crave them and want them sexually. And that's a really powerful healing process. Yeah, it is powerful. It's so interesting. I mean, I just, I I definitely am like, uh, I really want to, everything you just said is so thought provoking. I'm like, my mind is, is racing right now. <laughs> but I have these moments sometimes. I, you know, I live in LA now, but I lived in New York for most of my life. There are just times I'd be like on the subway. I'm just looking at everyone. And I wonder like, like what kind of sex are they into? Or like, what do they look like when they're having sex? And then I would judge myself as like being really perverted. Like, why are you undressing all of these strangers with your eyes? Stop doing that. It's so fascinating how sex, it truly is the most natural thing in the world. And who doesn't enjoy pleasure? I mean, it's pleasure, right? Like there's no... That's a funny thing. It's funny you just said that it's pleasure, right? Because I find myself constantly reminding it's supposed to be fun. Because yeah. we get, we remove the fun often because right. we're worried about how our body looks, what kind of sounds we're making. We're worried about, am I, and, and for people that are penis owners, they're worrying about, am I getting hard and staying hard and mm-hmm. you know, all these different factors. And I'm always saying over and over, you just literally moved all the fun and you went into your head and you're in performance. And it's like, go back to the fun. Yeah. The performance part is huge and yeah. it's huge for everyone, but well, for straight women in particular, straight cis women are like the the least sexually satisfied people 
ever. <laughs> and it's because of all of this conditioning that we have. It's like, oh, you know, I, I mean, I've done this too. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've had sex and I'm thinking about my body. I'm like thinking about what it looks like. I'm thinking about how my partner is like, oh, he put his hand there and it's like there's a roll or like, it's embarrassing to say this out loud. Luckily, thankfully, I'm past that point now. I'm fully past that point. But that was my life, most of my life, like well into my 30s. I, I certainly had, you know, pleasure and enjoyed sex, but I definitely did not enjoy it as much as I could have if I had just gotten out of my head. What is your advice for people to get out of their heads and to start just experiencing the fun and the pleasure of sex and intimacy, yeah. whether it's with themselves or with a partner? Yeah, it's such a big question, but I think it's probably one of the more valuable ones that one could ask. A couple of things. I mean, first off, just to do start with what you just did, which is recognize at some point what you've been doing thus far, because a lot of people are unconscious in their sexuality. They're not tapped in to their body or, or the awareness that pleasure was the goal. They're truly lost in watching the other person and trying to imagine how the person's perceiving them. So first step to any level of behavior change is just consciousness around what it is you do and what it is you're trying to do. That's the first one. The second thing is I tell people, and this is one of the rare times where I'm generally comfortable doing this. As long as, and this is the caveat, as long as you're having sex with someone and it's consensual, it's someone you feel safe with, I say, focus on what feels good to you because we generally are always focused on the other person and we're not focused on what we want and what we want to be doing. And so it's like this self-centering act, not self-centered, but self-centering act where we say, keep tracking how things feel to you. What might you want done next? Do you want to put your hands somewhere? Do you want to instruct them to do something differently? Just trying to bring it back to yourself because I'm still operating from what you said, this frame of cis hetero women tend to be the most neglected sexually. And so I work with far too many women that have accepted consciously or unconsciously the idea that like, I'm just generally knocking it off or I'm not really going to get sex, the kind of sex I want, or I've even been told that the kind of sex I want, what gets me off doesn't get them off, whether it's you know, I orgasm best from getting oral or I need them to, you know, put me in a certain position. And so I just start focusing on them requesting what they want, like knowing what you want and start requesting what you want and just start there. So in your clinical work as a therapist, when people come to you and couples specifically, when they come to you and they're having those kinds of challenges, I mean, to me, I, that's like the hardest job in the world because I would just be like, Hey, I don't know. Maybe you guys need to just break up and find <laughs> more compatible people. I don't know that. I don't even know how you start to tackle that. that that sometimes is in there. You know, that's the funny thing is we, that if we're attracted enough to someone and we like them enough that we can make anything work and that we can be with them. And sadly, that's just not true. Right. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have relationship to them or with them of some kind, but in an ideal world, if you want sustained happiness and sustained, you know, good sex or whatnot, you do want to find someone ideally that you are truly compatible with and have true chemistry with. Most people won't necessarily settle with that. Again, they'll be driven by, I find them very sexy, or I never did or never enjoyed the sex, but we built a life and I want to maintain the life we have. Whatever it is, they find these reasons to stick around. That's not good or bad. It's just not the best formula for sustained happiness and long-term sex. And so some people should say, you know, we're probably better off as friends. 
this isn't really, we're not built for marriage or monogamy or long-term success. I, as a sex therapist and couples therapist can help people capitalize and do a little better with who they are and what they co-create when they come together. But I can't create chemistry if that's just not there, but I can help them do better with sex feeling more connected and more pleasurable while not having chemistry or true connection. And sometimes the work is about realizing they need to separate and they're better off as friends. I mean, I wrote this article because of an experience I had where a lot of people confuse chemistry and compatibility. And that's an important thing to talk about too. You know, chemistry is a really powerful driving force that makes you make eye contact. It makes you ask them out. It makes you want to keep seeing them. But that's not compatibility. Amen to that. (laughs) Right? And it's very confusing. And I've gotten trapped in that as well, where I've hung in things because the chemistry was so powerful. But when I really sat with compatibility, meaning what are our two personalities like when they come together? How do we manage conflict? Do we have similar communication styles? I realized we're not compatible. We're not meeting each other well. We're fighting a lot, but the chemistry's there and that just isn't enough. Chemistry and compatibility are often in direct conflict. And I see this a lot in my work. Um, you know, with working with single people as a coach. And I describe like that instant chemistry, which feels so magical when you just feel that electric charge and you're so drawn to each other and everything is just, you know, every synapse in your body is like lighting up. Um, It's such an amazing feeling, but sometimes, and for some people in particular, if they have a lot of, if they have a toxic dating pattern, if they have maybe trauma or negative beliefs about themselves, about love, about intimacy, it's actually, in my opinion, what's driving that chemistry is that unconscious recognition of like, oh, you're the person that fits the puzzle piece of my dysfunction. And when I say, you know, not like my dysfunction, like you own it, but do you know, in terms of like, there's something yes, there is a level on which there's something in you that's recognizing something in that other person. And that recognition comes across as this like amazing chemistry. A lot of people, you know, really try to ride that wave into a long-term relationship. And it just more often than not doesn't work. Wouldn't you say? Oh, hundred percent. And I mean, the, the way I jokingly say it is, yeah, a lot of times we choose people from, as you said, and I say this very lovingly, but we, yeah, we'll choose people from our, our broken parts or our weaker parts or our unconscious conflicts. And, you know, I'll co-sign on your co-sign on mine and we'll high five and say, you know, it, it, it's a match. Right. <laughs> horrible. And I, you know, again, like, I, you know, I, me and you are further along and better along in terms of our understanding, but like, I still get trapped in stuff like that, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's a difficult thing. And I, I try to bring way more conscious. I mean, that's the other funny thing. People say to me, like, you must have the most amazing sex and relationships. And I say, well, you know, I hope so. But, you know, the real goal is just that I hope to do better, catch things sooner, let things have less severity, but I'm still a person. I still get trapped in some of this as well. That's definitely hard. So you are dating and you're a public figure and you're very, very, very expert on, you know, the topics of sex and relationships and love. And how is that for you when you're out in the world? It's funny. It's actually funny. It goes, you know, it's all over the place. There's some people that are intimidated. There's other people that are really excited and drawn to that because they're, it's a conversation or topic that's never been brought up and it's so novel and nuanced that there's a curiosity. Others, I think, are afraid of it attached to the fact that my work has a sexuality component. It's seen as, I don't know what adjectives they use, but it's kind of like to some, it's truly sex worker adjacent. Oh, you work in sex? Something must be wrong with you. You must be sex obsessed, but they don't mean that in a positive way. And you're kind of shamed for it. Had that happen even clinically at conferences 
where, you know, sexual psychology and sexology isn't seen in psychology as a really high level legit area of study, which is shocking, right? That is shocking. That's really shocking. Right? Yeah. But, you know, we're just not seen as legit, which blows my mind. So yeah, some people are made anxious because I'm going to analyze them. Other people are excited by it and others stigmatize it. I would, you know, that's really surprises me that other, you know, within the psychology field, what you do is somewhat stigmatized because I would imagine that every person who works in psychology, half of what they're dealing with their patients, with their clients is around sex. Like, how do they not see this as valid? (laughs) What you just said is what scares me about. Yeah, that's alarming. (laughs) I would say it's probably 60 to 70%, right? And what's what's really scary to me is in the field of psychology, you at best get maybe one pass-fail course in human sexuality and that's it. And that's shocking because if you work with a human being, especially if you're doing couples and marital therapy, sexuality is, my God, tied into Yeah, Yeah, they don't know how to work with it. So it takes a lot of supplemental learning that a lot of them don't go do. They just try to apply these random non-sexualized theories to everything. And it's kind of a mess. And so that's the other thing I'm always trying to bring forward is please don't think you don't work with sex, even though, but also please know that you are most likely unconsciously backing them away from bringing sex in because you're not pulling it in or up or holding it or being confident about it either. Yeah, that is, that's very disturbing. If I was going to see a psychologist who didn't think that sexual psychology and sexology was valid, that would, that's just not a psychologist I want to see. <laughs> it's just not, I just would not be interested in that. I, you know, there's something that I, I wanted to ask you about sexual stigma, but particularly as it pertains to STDs, STIs, and also about sexual inexperience. I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about this because I talk to women who are, you know, maybe they're in their 30s or their 40s and they don't have a lot of sexual experience and some may not have ever really had any sexual experience. There's so much shame around that because there's this assumption that everybody's been having sex since they were a teenager. It becomes hard for them to put themselves out there and dating because they're like, oh, I'm going to have to have a conversation or I'm going to feel awkward when someone's expecting me to have a certain kind of relationship with sex that I don't have. So that's one piece of it. But then also as it pertains to STIs and how in dating and how people navigate that, is that something that comes up in your work? The first point, I think that there's actually something really beautiful to be pointed out to those people that feel kind of sexually inexperienced and behind. The blessing of that is that they've probably not had to then suffer as much low-level sexual relational trauma. 100%. I've, to, I've said that to every person who's, who's ever expressed any... Let, let me tell you, you have, you have actually saved yourself from some things. There's some things I wish I could erase, honestly. Baggage that you're going to bring in to be dismantled in your relationship. And, and I really do mean that because the people that are, you know, hyper daters, hypersexual, you encounter a lot more of everything. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot more unconscious and conscious trauma that's brought forward. So great on that. Yeah. And I'd also say, look, you're unfortunately the victim also to this cultural idea that there aren't sexual developmental milestones that people are supported in achieving. So it's understandable that you never possibly felt really confident or empowered, especially if a female in our culture to really engage in that stuff. So I try to normalize and say, so it's actually very understandable. You know, it's not a personal pathology 
biology, our culture just doesn't set you up to feel secure in maybe trying certain things, right? We shame sex outside of relationship. We don't support more anonymous, casual kind of sexuality. And I wish we did. And then people might be more willing to try more of it because I really do believe in sexual relational developmental milestones. I think that there's one to be achieved. There's nothing wrong with achieving them later in life. They're still as meaningful and powerful. There's no timeline. I always try to remove a timeline. I don't think an age should tie to these stages, whatever they would even be. It's a process to go through at some point in your life if you choose to. And I tell people it's a very powerful one. And if you're beginning it at 40 or 50, great. Welcome to the process. You were focusing maybe on other things prior and here you are now and let's go through it now. Let's get away from an age thing. So you're not behind. You just haven't entered it yet. And here you are and I'll help you through it. And as far as the STD and STI, my God, it's heartbreaking. I just had on my, on my radio show, someone who works for the STD project. And, you know, she openly talks about this, having contracted genital herpes at 20 and how stigmatizing not only it was socially, but also her doctor just said, and this is something she's made very public. Her doctor said, oh, you're yeah, the worst case I've ever seen. Here's a medication. And just kind of like- Who wants to hear that? That is so traumatic. Oh, God. No support. No explanation, no understanding. There was no materials for her to read. We didn't have internet the way we have it now. And she said for decades, she felt broken and undateable and unlovable and disgusting. And that just should not be. And through working with her, uh, she helped me understand that. You know, there was a time in our culture where we just saw herpes as a skin irritation because that's really what it is. It's not life-threatening. It's just, you know, a skin condition. The medication and big pharma companies started to really pathologize and they came out with a quote-unquote cure for it. Most STD, STI testing that you'll get done will not include a herpes test because that's more expensive. It involves blood work and the medical community assumes you have it because most of us do. We're just asymptomatic. I've had this conversation with so many people and they're just like, I'm like, everybody has herpes. And if you don't, if you don't have symptoms, you've still been exposed to it. Just FYI (laughs) in your life. And people are so resistant to that idea. I mean, goodness. And I also tell people, you know, what's unfortunate, and this is again, part of our sex phobic section culture is that if you get any kind of other infection, you know, you call your doctor and you're like, look, I'm really sick. I got the flu. And you're at home for a week on your couch, shitting your pants, not coming out of your nose. We're like, that's cool. We get it. But if (laughs) I got something from sex, we're like, you are dirty. Wait, why is that? Why is there a distinction? I have secondary trauma because I have a very good friend of mine who I grew up with who contracted herpes when we were in high school. It became common knowledge and she was so shamed. It was so horrible just having to see what she went through. It actually freaked me out and it delayed me having sex because I was, what if that happens to me? Like, I won't be able to cope with that. It was a really traumatic event. And I wonder, do you think, has it gotten any better? No, I don't think it has. And that's what's so heartbreaking because, you know, you were in high school around the same time I was. That was decades ago. And we haven't advanced much at all. And that's why, thankfully, but also it's a sign that we haven't advanced much. There's dating websites specifically for people that have chronic and curable STDs and STIs. That also is a sign that they needed a special site because dating just isn't as accessible otherwise. And so I'm glad they have such a thing, but it's also a sign that they just can't integrate into the traditional dating apps and whatnot. And so, you know, my God, there's so much work to be done about that. You know, again, I tell people, be more worried about a sick baby in a doorknob because you might be out for a full week. Because 
true. Like just wash your hands. Wash your hands, people. That's the most important thing. As an STI, is you take a pill, get a shot in the butt, and two to three days, you're back. You're back at it. So, but yeah, there's a lot of work to do around that. It's an important conversation to keep. What do you think is getting better? Because certainly, cer- some things are getting better around sexuality. So what? What do you see as sort of the most encouraging trends or, you know, not trends, but the most encouraging signs that people are really starting to broaden their understanding and acceptance of the diversity of human sexuality? I would say one of them is the vast and fast movement around female sexual empowerment. I see a lot of really powerful celebrities leading that and pushing that forward. And Mm -hmm. I've seen a massive impact around that. So I'm thankful for that. I think that's phenomenal. And it has wide reaching effects on people that aren't females or female identified or female bodied. And I think that's awesome. So I love that. And we have people like Lizzo, let's say for instance, that are bringing forward a combination of like sexual empowerment, body positivity, talking about race. She's amazing. Yeah. You know, again, I, I jokingly always say I don't like her music, but I love her politics. <laughs> She's a great performer, an amazing talent. I just wish I liked her music. I love I I'm her. not really a pop music fan, but okay. I, I have so much love for her. <laughs> I'm like, more of that, please. Every day, I, I, I think everything about people like her is phenomenal. And she's, you know, one of many. And I, and I just think it's great. I, I love that. So I think that's been, that's been great. Otherwise, it's really tough because every time I start to think a couple of these topics that I work really hard to help change have have shifted, uh, people start coming into my office and kind of let me know that it hasn't based on new clients coming in and what they're struggling with. I wanted to say that I thought we were finally getting a little more comfortable with porn and just nudity, meaning things like women publicly breastfeeding and that that was starting to get normalized. But then I'll see a few things culturally push back on that. So uh, that's kind of creeping up, but the best answer would be female sexual empowerment, I think. That makes sense to me. I think that is probably the one thing that I don't really see any backsliding happening there. Because first of all, you know, we're half of the population and the impact is just too immediate and too positive that I just, yeah, it's hard to imagine that backsliding as much as maybe some other things related, but not you know, exactly. What do you think about gender fluidity? That would be an area that I think is getting a lot of traction and and progressing pretty fast. I see a lot of that on social media. What would you call it? I guess, lar- I don't know how you'd explain the differentiation, but television and, and film, I don't see it happening quickly at all. But social media, culturally, in music and all, pretty fast. Even with people like Sam Smith, who are, you know, more famous, kind of talking about being gender fluid, but people under him that aren't as famous, so many people coming out and coming forward, identifying is that and and I love it because it just reminds us of the creativity and diversity that that is gender and that there's just hundreds of ways to identify and it's not just you know two options only and I and I love that and I hope that that trickles out because we see that also with sex people identifying as pansexual sexually fluid I think that's awesome it's giving language to people that didn't understand who they were and it's creating options and possibility and so these terms and these concepts are waking parts of people up that identified with because they didn't realize that things were possible right so yeah. People that had maybe seen themselves as straight or gay or bi or female or male, when they're seeing these other people holding space for other possibilities, they're like, oh, I identify with that. That might be what's most comfortable for most comfortable for me and they move towards it. And so I've seen a lot of that in my practice and in the culture and I absolutely love that. Do you think in 20 years that monogamy is going to be out the window? Yes. 
a hundred. I love forecasting and I absolutely a hundred percent believe that. Yes. Really? Yes. I, I truly do. You know, again, we have a lot of people that are wanting about traditional values. Great. But the millennials are definitely being more explorative with sexual identity, gender, and relational style configuration. I'm just tracking the poly world, the polyamory world. And there's a multitude of new books coming out every year, more people coming out publicly about it. I'm seeing people in my practice, people that had traditionally been very standardized in their relational thinking, wanting to talk about it more. I have more people coming in that had only been monogamous that want to try things like poly and open in the, you know, men who have sex with men and gay communities. It is really common to see couples that are open in different ways and styles uh, for sure. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. For me, you know what? It's interesting with polyamory. I'm just like, that just feels like too much work. I don't know. I think maybe if I was 20, I would feel differently. But at this point, I'm like, luckily, I, you know, I have a partner who I love and we're committed to each other. And I just, the idea of bringing other elements into that relationship is so unappealing to me. And I don't know if that's just like cultural conditioning. Like, who knows? If I hadn't been raised the way that I was raised, maybe I would feel differently. I think it's all the above, right? You know, I agree with you. Culturally, I was raised where we had one option. You're single or you're with someone working towards something, you know, committed and monogamy. And so I think for people like us, raised the way we were raised, it's very possible for us to say like, wow, it's a lot more responsibility and accountability and energy and we don't have that retired. But I got so much work to do. I just don't, <laughs> I'm not that organized. <laughs> I don't want a calendar. But I think for other people, it's really important because they, they actually see it in reverse where for them, one partner feels very daunting and overwhelming where a multitude feels more free and open and liberating. And so for them, that's why that makes sense. But I, I'm with you in that. I work a lot. I have a lot. I have very few. I have a little bit of downtime. It, I can barely squeeze my friends in there. It's the only room for like one romantic partner or two, you know, at best. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have one more question for you. And this, I mean, I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But question that I have, and we haven't really talked about love. How much are you thinking about love in relation to sex these days? I mean, is the idea of being very sexually open and expressive and where does love fit in? It's a good one. I, I don't think I've ever been asked that, which is really odd, right? <laughs> I love love. <laughs> Beautiful things that humans can have. It's this thing that we can't quite wrap our heads around, you know, how to explain it or, or what creates it. It's such a powerful for force. It throws everyone off. Like, I love that. It's so disorienting and so beautiful and so transformative. I think it's both. I think when we talk about sexuality and dating, I think it's ever present. But again, I think it's something that we can't force or seek. I think we can lay the conditions upon which to find it or to have it occur. And so it's always kind of there looming, like we're wanting it, we're seeking it, we're bumping into it. We might tip into it and find it and have it. But often you're right. When we talk about sex and dating, somehow that term isn't always folded into that conversation, although it's always looming in the background. But I think it's a beautiful, powerful force. And yeah, you're reminding me to find ways to kind of weave it in and give it more focus. But it's there. I love it. I think it's, I think it's a stunning goal for people to have in their lives. It makes life worth living. I mean, and I don't just mean romantic love. I just mean love generally, but so interesting, man, I have really loved this conversation. I have so much to think about. I'm like, I can't wait to listen back to this. <laughs> just said so many things that were so thought provoking. Well, 
Dr. Chris, I thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And do you have anything in particular? So in the show notes, I'm going to link to, I mean, you've got so much, your website, your social media, your books, your podcast, your radio show. I mean, there, there's a lot, but is there anything in particular that you want the listeners to know about that you're working on? Yes. Two things I would say. So my newest book, Rebel Love, came out in January. So always trying to kind of push that, but also starting again in, I believe, November. I go back on the road doing a lecture and book tour with the Sexual Health Alliance. And so I'll be coming to, multitude, to a multitude of cities. I think in November, I'm in Seattle and Chicago. And then after that, I just kind of start traveling around the US. So definitely, you know, check that out. Amazing. I can't wait. Well, you're definitely going to be in LA. I'm going to come see you. I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. You as well. Bye. Bye. <laughs> And there you have it, my conversation with Dr. Chris. I hope that you enjoyed listening as much as I did and as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. Be sure to check the show notes for links to all of Dr. Chris's social media and his website and more. And of course, you can stay in touch with me at Dear Franny. I am at Dear Franny on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and everywhere. I'm even on TikTok. I don't actually use it, but I'm there. I'm going to start using it, you know? I'm cutting edge like that. <laughs> and you you can stay in touch with the podcast at Dear Franny Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for your ratings. Thank you for your reviews. If you haven't had the chance and you are enjoying this podcast, I would definitely appreciate you even more than I already do for listening because I do appreciate you just for listening. But if you have the chance to leave a rating, leave a review, let me know who you are, where you are, you know, just tell me what you like about the show and hit me up and tell me who you want to hear from and what you're enjoying about the show. I would love that, appreciate it. And hopefully it will make the show even better because that is my goal. Thank you so much wherever you are in the world. I don't take for granted that you are spending some of your very precious time with me. So thank you and have a beautiful day. Goodbye.